Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the next edition of the Stanford Anesthesia Tutorial Podcast. And here again with me today is Alex Rodriguez. Hello, CA1s, finishing the end of their second week, and the rest of our anesthesia listeners. So today we're going to go with a little bit of a shorter topic. Um, we're going to talk about how to set up the OR. Uh, which is something that kind of actually surprisingly takes a lot of practice um, to actually get into the flow of things and get right and get faster, to be honest. I remember at the beginning of my anesthesia training showing up like an hour, hour and a half early um, to help set up the room and even then just barely feeling like I had any time to set anything up. But we're hoping that by doing this podcast and giving you all a framework on how to set up the OR that things will be a little bit easier um, and then something that could previously have been a stressful part of the day becomes a lot easier and even a time to relax as you're setting up your room. Yeah, we, we hope to, to demystify kind of what people think about when setting up the OR. Uh, before you know it, it's going to become uh, second nature. And just a, a disclaimer, this is one way to set up the OR. You know, this is going to go over a very basic setup for a general anesthetic uh, that we commonly do at Stanford. Um, but it's going to vary whether you're on PEDS, if you're on cardiac, if you're setting up for a neuro case or any of those kinds of things. And hopefully we'll have some anecdotes for those types of cases as well. Um, so starting off, when do people get to the operating room? Um, that's a question that we often get asked, um, and, and as an anesthesia resident, you will likely be the first person in the operating room in the morning, um, and it's kind of nice to have a little bit of alone time in the morning and think through the day. Um, I remember when I was an early CA1, similar to Derek, I would get there probably at 6 a.m. for a, a 7.15 start and use every single minute of that time <laughs> oh, yeah. going over things a third time and fourth time. Um, I think now, you know, most CA2s and CA3s for your, your, your basic standard case that you're still going to do general anesthesia and intubate the patient, uh, most people get there around 6.30. You know, those of us who are more uh, efficient or, or need less prep time, maybe slightly later. Um, others, you know, who maybe want a little bit more time slightly earlier, but I'd say for myself in general, get in around 6.30 um, for a 7.15 start. And of course, earlier, if you're on cardiac or any of the other rotations that requires a little bit more setup. Um, the other thing I'll mention is that while most of your supplies and equipment are going to be in your operating room, in your omnicell, I'll often make a trip to pharmacy on my way to the operating room, just so I don't have to leave the operating room, go to pharmacy, and then come back. Um, some things that I'll get for the majority of my days are um, a few bags of albumin just to have another way to administer um, some intravenous fluid to my patient um, if we're getting uh, a little bit uh, high on the amount of crystalloid we've been giving. And then often you'll run a background uh, vasopressor infusion to counteract some of the hypotension that you get from our anesthetic agents. And we nicely have pre-made bags of phenylephrine. Um, I'd say that's the most standard. Um, some people will substitute the phenylephrine for norepinephrine for various reasons that are beyond the scope of this podcast. Um, other things that you can grab for pharmacy, depending on the room you're in, are tranexamic acid, for example, if you're in an ortho case. You can get mannitol from pharmacy as well if you're in a neuro case. 
um, any of your spinal medications. Um, if you're going to be doing a neuraxial technique, your local anesthetics will be getting from, from pharmacy. And then most of our uh, downers, such as clividipine or nitroprusside or nitroglycerin, are also going to be from pharmacy and uh, not in the omnicell. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of extenuating circumstances. And as Alex mentioned, there's a lot of variability in terms of what you might get for any either given case or either any given patient. And so if you're kind of new to setting up the room and knowing what to get, it's always a nice way. And that's kind of part of the reason the attendings like to chat the day before, just so you're prepared, know what to get, know what to set up and know what to prep. Uh, and of course, it never hurts to ask some of the more senior residents or other residents in your class as well for help in terms of how to set up a drip or how to set up a special piece of equipment that you've never used before. And of course, this is also really variable in terms of locations that you, that you are on rotation at. So right now I'm still on Valley and a lot of these drips, we get the vials from a central Pixis and we end up uh, having to make the drips ourselves. And here I'll take the chance to talk about one of the most popular mnemonics that a lot of us use in terms of figuring out what to set up for a case. And that's MS-MADES, M-S-M-A-I-D-S. There are a lot of other mnemonics out there, but I think, and this might be my own personal bias, I think MS-MADES is the superior mnemonic. Yeah, and just to, to go over what MS MADES uh, stands for, so uh, it's machine, suction, monitors, airway, IV, drugs, and special equipment or miscellaneous. Um, that's the exact same mnemonic I use every morning uh, still to this day. And kind of just like re repeat it to myself, you know, every morning, okay, I've set up my machine, I have my suction ready, my monitors, and we'll go through um, each one of those and the things that you want to think about. So starting with the first M in the MS Maids mnemonic, we're going to talk about machine. So the first thing that I always do in the morning is check to see if the machine is even on. And this is something very simple that will actually save a lot of time because a lot of the machines, especially some of the more advanced machines that take a while to do their self-check in the morning, will take quite a bit of time to turn on, oftentimes over 10 minutes. So forgetting to do this step or waiting to do this step until the patient is in the room can oftentimes uh, cost a lot of time from that perspective. Uh, once I check to make sure the machine is on, I'll check to see that the automated machine or the leak test was performed. And a lot, on a lot of the machines that we have at Stanford, um, a lot of the Draeger uh, Perseus machines, at least, that we have at Stanford, a lot of them will notate on the screen when the machine check or the leak test was performed. And oftentimes that'll be performed by the anesthesia tech the night before. The next thing that I'll check is that there are anesthetic in the canisters. Um, and that there, there is a circuit that's actually attached to the machine. Uh, so an easy way to check to see if there's anesthetic in the canisters is simply by looking at the canister itself and checking the, the level of the liquid anesthetic that's actually in the canisters. Uh, and if there isn't any in there, it's very simple to just fill it up yourself as well. Um, and then looking to see if the circuit is attached. Sometimes there will have been a case that went 
on overnight and the circuit was used but not essentially replaced. So I like to make sure that the circuit is attached to the machine, that there is an expiratory limb, an inspiratory limb, uh, that there's no source of potential leaks and that the sampling line is actually attached to the circuit um, and that there is a mask, uh, anesthesia face mask that uh, is either already attached to the circuit or somewhere that's available that you can then attach to the circuit. And then the next thing I like to check also is that the CO2 absorbent isn't exhausted. And the quick way to do that is one, see if you even have a CO2 absorbent on the machine. And then two, uh, check to see if all the absor absorbent in there is still white or if it's still purplish colored from uh, being exhausted. And then you should check to see if there's an auxiliary oxygen tank in the back of the machine. Does this oxygen tank have a regulator? Does it have a wrench to open the valve? And is there O2 in the tank? And this is important to check just in case there is machine failure and you do have to rely on that auxiliary oxygen to be able to oxygenate the patient. And the last thing that I do under the machine portion is a positive pressure test. I'll turn the APL valve up to about usually 40 or so, and I'll occlude the circuit, uh, and then I'll flush the machine using the O2 flush valve uh, until the positive pressure builds up to the point where it's released by the APL. Uh, this is a quick and fast way to see if the circuit will hold positive pressure and if the circuit will hold air. Yeah, and I, I'll just add that the machine check is, should be done every uh, 24 hours. And then the, the full check takes a little bit longer than just the uh, leak test, which is performed uh, between cases. So just be prepared to, once you start the test, to kind of go do some other things that can take a little bit of time. So often the machine is the first thing that we'll do, and I totally agree with Derek. Um, and then just troubleshooting if your machine fails the test. Um, oftentimes it's something as simple as the water trap on the um, gas sampling line uh, that is occluded or not fully uh, plugged in um, or the CO2 absorbent either missing or not fully locked in place. So just two kind of simple fixes. Um, next in MS is suction. Um, so this one you just want to check uh, that the suction tubing is connected. Um, that you have a yank hour tip, that it can hold uh, pressure uh, when you uh, occlude it, and then often that it's located in a place where it's easily uh, available once you induce general anesthesia. Um, so a lot of people will just tuck this either uh, under the patient's pillow or under the, the bed on the right side, kind of near your, your right hand, um, when you'd be standing over the patient's head uh, during intubation. Um, this is a thing that is often disconnected or kind of missing between cases, so definitely something to, to check every time. And I really like your point about having the suction in a place that's readily available because there have been plenty of times, I mean, I would say for most of the elective cases where the patient's appropriately MPO and optimized for surgery, it's not an issue to necessarily have the suction readily available, but oftentimes when you're doing emergency cases, or someone comes in, um, just ate a big meal and has to have an emergency surgery or has been sick for a while and it's very difficult for them to clear their secretions. Oftentimes, if you do an airway exam before you start the case, you can see that they look a little gunky in the mouth. And in that, those situations, I always make sure the suction 
is at least under the pillow or under the mattress or sometimes when you may have to give a lot of ketamine for induction or yes, for whatever absolutely. reason. And I'll, I'll also add that um, this MS Maids mnemonic applies to um, induction of anesthesia kind of anywhere in the hospital. So often, you know, you'll be doing an, an airway in the ICU. And again, going through this checklist, uh, suction is often missing. Um, you know, a lot of non-anesthesia providers don't really think that this is a necessary component uh, prior to inducing anesthesia, but something that should be readily available in an emergency. Yeah, I completely agree. I think especially if you're doing an ICU intubation, it's even more crucial to have the suction nearby. I think any of us has a story about uh, some gunky airway <laughs> or some airway that's filled with blood. Um, and we just thank our lucky stars that suction was available and working and ready at hand. So next part of the MS maids mnemonic that I'll cover is the next M, which is monitors. Uh, so the first thing that I will check is to make sure the monitor is actually present and that it turns on and then it's associated to all the modules and the channels that are already uh, should be in close proximity to the machine. And I do want to check that all the cables are attached to the modules and that at least uh, some form of monitoring from that cable is available on the actual monitor itself. The next thing I do check is to make sure the device is associated in the EMR. And at Stanford, we do use EPIC, and that's something that uh, a lot of the attendings or some of the senior residents can help in terms of finding out which buttons to click to get that to happen. And then after that, I will check, uh, in case we are needing extended monitors, I will check to see if there are extended monitors or tubing or transducers available. So if ahead of time you know that you're going to be placing an A-line or that you may be placing an A-line or a central line that you may be transducing CVP from, I'll check to see that those lines, cables, tubing, and transducers as well as pressure bags are all ready to go. The pressure bag has fluid in it and it's inflated and that we do have a tracing that's going to appear on the monitor as well. And then more for cardiac cases as well, I'll make sure that there is a TEE machine in the room if necessary. And then if the plan is to place a PA line just to make sure the transducer um, as well as the cable is there in the room as well. And then the next point is something that's more of a style thing and I think can really save time when you bring the patient in is that placing the EKG leads already either below the pillow or beneath the mattress uh, with the green, white, the black, brown, and red leads on their appropriate sides, um, I think that can really save a lot of time in terms of getting the monitors on as soon as the patient hits the room. Because the last thing that you want to be doing when you're trying to set up and get going is fumbling around with the EKG leads and trying to untangle them from anything. And I've, I've had them tangle on all kinds of things before. The last thing that I'll talk about in terms of monitors is if you also think is indicated is that you do have either a set line sticker or a BIS monitor, which they'll use at other institutions available, uh, just in case that's something that you decided that you wanted to use for monitoring of the patient during the case. Yeah, and just to be specific for our, our CA1 residents, since it may not be second nature quite yet, um, standard monitors that you're going to do on, on all patients that you're taking care of are 
pulse oximeter that's going to measure your SpO2 and your heart rate. Also EKG leads. We do a, a five lead for most patients. Um, temperature, so some way, whether that's just skin temperature, whether it's going to be an esophageal temp probe, uh, tympanic temp probe, depending on the case, um, and then some way to measure blood pressure, usually a non-invasive cuff or an arterial line. Um, we use Sedline all the time at Stanford, and we have a lot of attendings who are very interested in it, both uh, for research purposes and clinically. Um, so hopefully throughout your, your training, you'll get more uh, facile at, at reading the actual uh, EEG waveform. Um, it's something that you can definitely do um, by the time you're a, a CA3. Um, next in the MAIDS mnemonic is airway. Um, so typically kind of starting from least invasive to most invasive, um, like Derek said, you want to make sure you have a face mask. Um, for most patients, it's going to be a standard size, um, but if, for example, you have a very, very small patient, you might ask for a smaller face mask from the anesthesia techs. Um, usually, I'll rip off two paces of the clear tape and place it on the mask, so as soon as I'm done uh, intubating the patient, or even before often, you'll be able to tape their eyes once you induce. Um, I'll have my pink tape either sitting on the machine or kind of taped to the uh, reservoir bag handle um, to tape the endotracheal tube once it's in place. Um, you'll want whatever type of device you're going to be using to intubate. Um, so at, at the very least, I'd have a direct laryngoscopy handle and blade set up to go and check that the light uh, is working. Um, you want to look in your drawer and make sure that you have alternative sizes or if you're using a Mac that you have a Miller blade available somewhere as well. Many of the rooms also will have a, a CMAC um, that's available um, and your attendings or uh, senior residents can show you how to set that up ahead of time. Um, glide scopes um, are available from the techs and you can get that ahead of time um, as well as uh, fiber optic intubation equipment. And then no matter the case I'm doing, I do always check that my bottom drawer has uh, LMAs in all three sizes available because in the difficult airway algorithm, if you're unable to ventilate and unable to intubate the patient, um, that's going to be your next step. Um, I'll also stylet an endotracheal tube, um, make sure that the pilot balloon uh, inflates and the cuff does not leak. Um, I'll lubricate the, um, the uh, endotracheal tube as well and make sure you have other sizes available. Um, even for a MAC case, I usually do have a styleted tube just available in case of an emergency. Um, and then we talked about some of the backup equipment already. Um, one thing that's easy to forget, um, but that can save you in a pinch, uh, for example, if your machine fails or if you have an oxygen failure, um, is a self-inflating bag or an AMBU bag. And that should be available on the back of all of the Omni cells in every operating room. Yeah, and I think that's a good point with the self-inflating bag. I think that's one of the easiest things to miss or kind of let go by. I have to admit there are quite a few times where I don't necessarily check for that. But it is really important because I, I do remember there was a week, our CA one year, maybe it was a series of weeks where we had a number of machine failures. Um, there was actually one case that I remember being a part of where we induced the patient uh, she went to sleep, went apneic, didn't have very much reserve so we could hear her desatting. I think into already the 80s by the time she had even just 10 seconds of apnea, she had just very little time. And then when it time came time to bag the patient up with the machine, the machine couldn't generate any positive pressure at all. And thank goodness we had one of those self-inflating AMBU bags ready to go. We connected it to the auxiliary oxygen and we were able to bag the patient through it until she actually woke up and we had time to exchange the entire machine out of the room 
and then induce her again. So I think that self-inflating Ambu bag, even though it's, it's very easy to miss, and I've definitely done my share of not checking for it before, it, it is a very important part of the check. Yeah, and I'll, I'll always make sure it's, it's available for, for transport as well. Um, luckily, it, it's never happened to me, um, but there have been times when patient, when uh, anesthesia residents have been uh, stuck in the elevator uh, with a patient, um, still recovering from anesthesia on the way to the ICU, uh, in need of oxygenation and ventilation. Um, and if you don't have a self-inflating bag, you just better hope that that oxygen canister does not run out by the time the elevator door opens. Um, the one case that I heard, it seemed like everything went fine, but I, I do think that there was a, a self-inflating bag that was being used. Next, I'll talk about the eye of the MS maids mnemonic, which refers to IV or lines. So just talking about IV first, the simplest way that I like to prepare for my IVs is by making an IV boat. This includes all kinds of stuff that you would need for an IV like the actual angiocath itself. Um, sometimes I'll at least place two in there just in case something goes wrong with the first one. Uh, and then of course a tourniquet to tie up the arm, an alcohol swab, some gauze, and then something to actually secure the line with. And then depending on the size of the angiocath itself, you may or may not want to put a clave on that. If it's a large volume line, like something like a 14 or a 16, I'd probably not put a clave on it just because there are, uh, it can theoretically impede the flow. But if it's something that you think you might disconnect at the end of the case, it's always a nice idea to put a clave on it as well. And then further on, if you do plan on placing an A-line, uh, getting together another boat as well. I'll use some of the kidney, the plastic kidney basins that are available on top of our anesthesia carts. So what I'll prepare for an A-line is a wrist roll with a green towel that I'll roll up and then I'll tape and I'll actually tape it all around with the eye tape or the clear tape and just keep it on there so I'll know where the tape is. And then either a chloroprep or an alcohol swab and then, of course, if you're going to use an aero catheter for the A-line, have the aero catheter. Usually for adults, I would say we generally use 20-gauge aero catheters almost all the time. Uh, some gauze for cleanup, uh, some tegaderm, and some tape as well. And then furthermore, just going over what we would need for IVs, making sure that there's something to connect it to. So if you're not going to have a clave, uh, you may need some tubing and specifically a blood pump to connect it to or either a fluid bag. Uh, and then if you are running a series of drips and you feel like a carrier is necessary, having some carrier tubing and um, the bag that's attached to the carrier as well to be able to use your infusions. Yeah, I, I set up my uh, IV lines the, the same way as Derek. Um, when I'm gathering all the supplies, I kind of think of it in the order that I'm gonna do the procedure and kind of visualize what I need. So uh, for an IV, you need the tourniquet first, then you need something to clean the skin, then the angiocath, and so on. So that's how I remembered not to forget anything. Um, in terms of the claves, you know, I've, I've seen mixed evidence on whether they actually impede flow uh, or, or not, but you can uh, discuss that with your uh, attending of the day uh, based on, on their preference. Um, 
sometimes I will use the pre-made IV kits and just add what I need, but I do note that you end up wasting a lot of the supplies in the IV kit that you don't need. So there is that. And then as an early CA1, I would just recommend um, however much gauze you think you need, do that times three. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes for me, I, I still do that. <laughs> so um, extra gauze never hurt anyone. Yeah, I think the worst feeling is when you work so hard to get your A-line in and then for some reason, uh, once you're in the process of connecting your tubing, all this blood spurts out onto the floor, onto yourself, onto your shoes, all over the patient. And then someone makes the joke, anesthesia blood loss, that's not always a good feeling. <laughs> so uh, yeah, exactly what Alex said, have twice the amount of gauze that you need. That's always a great idea. All right, home stretch. So now we're on D uh, drugs. And we'll just go over a, a very basic setup, kind of the bare minimum. Um, and you can add other things as needed. Um, so the bare bones to induce a patient, intubate them, and go off on, under general anesthesia is usually uh, drawing up some fentanyl, some propofol, and some rocuronium. Um, most people still draw up two sticks of the propofol, though I do know some people just stick with one for now, one 20cc syringe. Um, the rocuronium syringes are usually pre-made and 10cc's each. Um, and then fentanyl usually drawing up the full 5cc's of 50 mics per, um, so 250 mics total. Um, though for some cases or some patients you might just do the 2ml syringe or 100 mics. Um, adding to that, what is done most standardly, I'd say, is adding midazolam as a pre-med, uh, done very commonly at Stanford, maybe less so at some of our other sites. Um, also using lidocaine, both to blunt the response to laryngoscopy and to decrease the burn for propofol. Another good discussion topic is of the various ways to decrease uh, the burn from propofol using lidocaine or other methods. Um, I do also draw up my post-induction meds, just again to save time once the tube is in and kind of decrease my cognitive load. Um, we'll usually dose our dexamethasone at this point uh, for PONV prophylaxis, um, and depending on the case, you can do a pain dose as well. And then drawing up your antibiotics as well, because that's going to be the right limiting step for the surgeons to prep and drape and uh, begin the surgery. You'll also want uh, your backup drugs uh, for hypotension, so we have pre-made phenylephrine syringes um, and often have pre-made ephedrine syringes, though not always, that will sometimes need to be drawn up in a vial and you can decide ahead of time whether you need both or if just phenylephrine will cut it. Um, I do look also in my drawer and just make sure I have some code dose epinephrine uh, just in case, um, because if there was a big case before it uh, where they used it, you might be all out. Um, you'll set up any infusions you need, uh, most commonly either a propofol infusion or a phenylephrine infusion. Other things we commonly use that don't necessarily need to be drawn up uh, before the case, unless you're going to use it for induction, uh, is both ketamine and hydromorphone. And I'll do another plug for the tutorial notebook um, for how to dose all of these uh, drugs. You have a nice QR code you can scan. Um, and then lastly, going down to special equipment, this is kind of a, a catch-all for anything you might have forgotten or anything uh, miscellaneous. Um, you can have an ultrasound in the room here if you're planning to use it for any of your lines, any of your special intubating equipment like an air track um, or your fiber optic if you didn't set that up under your airway, but really just anything else that you might be forgetting. 
Yeah, I think the uh, S is really kind of a catch-all for everything else, but really you should be covering everything else in the MS-made portion of the mnemonic. All right, so just uh, kind of wrapping up here with a few extras. Um, something else that's nice to do uh, in the morning um, once you do get familiar with the operating rooms is just to know where the co nearest code cart is um, in your core. You know, it's in a different place depending on where you are. And in an emergency situation, it's really nice to know where that is in case um, your circulator is busy or you have a traveling nurse who might not remember where it is, telling them just to go out this door and turn right and bring the cart in the room in an emergency. Um, and then I also look in uh, who's next door. Um, both for, you know, if I need a, an extra set of hands in an emergency, if someone's available to help, either the resident or the attending, um, and just looking next door at kind of who is going to be uh, near me that I can uh, chat with uh, on my breaks before going back into my OR and just seeing if they need any help. One other thing that's nice as kind of an extra, and it's not really a must, is turning on your anesthesia machine and making sure that you preset the title volume and at least the PEEP settings if you're using volume control uh, on your anesthesia machine. Oftentimes, at least on some of the machines at Valley, I've intubated the patient, connected the patient to the ventilator, turned on some gas, and I get caught up doing something else. Then I look back and the machine is delivering tidal volumes of 700, which is kind of a lot for, I would say, most people who aren't tall. Um, so that's always a very nice thing to do. Of course, this is something that we are a lot more mindful of when we're on the peds rotation, especially since they're much smaller. Delivering a child or a neonate, a 700 tidal volume breath would be much worse than just delivering that same breath to a small adult. And then one little extra, once you're all done with your own setup, is getting to know the nurse and the scrub tech who's gonna be in your room. Um, and at least asking them their names, introducing yourself, and kind of communicating with them about how you think the day is gonna go. Uh, one thing that I think is also important, just to make sure everybody is on the same page, is asking when the patient can come back to the room. Because oftentimes, the room may take a little extra time to be set up. There might be equipment that's not readily available, or something that's not clean that's needed for the case. So it's nice to always ask your circulator, when the room is gonna be ready. Um, and oftentimes I usually like to ask, when do you think would be a good time to bring back the patient? Just so they know that there's no rush from your end to get the room set up. It's just simply a question in kind of communicating with them and seeing when the room would be ready and then when anesthesia would be ready to help bring the patient back. Yeah, that's, that's such a great tip, Derek, and it definitely uh, sets the tone uh, for how the day is gonna go. Um, it's also super useful um, on the one hand if you're going to have a really sick patient um, to kind of put it on their radar that this is going to be a little bit hairy and you might be calling on them for help. Um, and then also just letting them know a little bit of your anesthetic plan. So for example, if you're planning on placing a spinal or an epidural, um, they might let you come back to the room a little bit earlier even if they're not done completely setting up knowing that uh, your procedure is going to take a couple of minutes. Yeah, the, the nurses in the room uh, can be such a valuable resource, actually. For me, a lot of times when it was my first time doing the anesthetic for a certain type of case, it was the nurses or the circulator nurses maybe hundredth or thousandth time doing the case. <laughs> and so 
I would be able to ask them a lot of questions in terms of, oh, what is this surgeon like? What does this surgeon uh, like? What are the preferences? And then also importantly, how's the patient going to be positioned? Because that can kind of affect how your line placement is going to be and even how your tube placement is going to be. So even asking them questions about how they think the case is going to go can provide you a lot of information on the best way to set yourself up for success. Especially if it's booked for neuromonitoring or no <laughs> neuromonitoring, because that'll completely, completely change your anesthetic plan. Exactly. So that, that actually brings us to the end of our podcast here. So just as a little fun thing, I, I wanted to ask you, Alex, what uh, have you done that has really excited you recently? What's something cool that you've either seen or done recently over this past month? Let's see. So um, I went golfing, uh, as we said on our last podcast, and, and that was, was awesome. We actually had a, a, a foursome of all uh, anesthesia uh, residents, so that was really fun. Um, and then in the meantime, I also saw uh, the new Thor movie, uh, which is awesome. Uh, very similar uh, kind of feel to Ragnarok. They definitely um, take advantage of all the, the, the comedy that, that the actors can provide. Um, and we have a great theater right here in Mountain View, so I enjoyed that recently. What about you? Well, before I get into what I did, I think the people want to know, what did you shoot? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that'll be uh, uh, taken with me to, to, to the grave. <laughs> no, no, but uh, all jokes aside, um, uh, we, we, played, uh, all, we all played uh, quite well, I'd say. Um, and, uh, you know, we are looking for, for more people to join us. Wow, that's incredible. And I, I echo the sentiment you had about Thor, Love and Thunder. It was such a delight to see Natalie Portman again um, in that role. And I think Chris, the addition of Christian Bale, he really brings oh, amazing. just like it, an incredible, incredible actor performance to that role. Highly recommend, even if you're not a big Marvel fan. It's just, it's just a really fun time. Uh, one thing that I thought was really cool was... Uh, just because it's been July, I haven't been able to get out there and be very active this month, but I was talked into a bike ride um, by one of our old residents, freshly graduated. He's now Oh yes, attending. I saw pictures of this yes, bike ride. Bob, uh, he convinced me, and this is how he always convinces me, that it's, it's not going to be too bad, it's going to be <laughs> really chill. Uh, but we ended up going on a 2,800 foot elevation climb uh, all the way up to the top of Santa Cruz, uh, the mountain range up there. Oh, wow. It was a really, in, in retrospect, I should say, it was a really pleasant ride. The weather was really nice. The scenery was amazing. But I was suffering the entire time and just reconsidering all my life choices up to that point. <laughs> but, yeah. Anyway, thank you all for joining us on... Our most recent episode of the Anesthesia Stat Stanford Anesthesia Tutorial Podcast. And uh, keep listening. We'll have more content available shortly here. We're hoping to do another podcast here on PACU Handoff and then furthermore to come. So thank you all for listening and see you all in the ORs. Bye.